When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Jota, Dundalk and Cavan. Order your new 221 Renault today from our extensive Renault range. Guaranteed delivery and low-rate APR finance. Visit blackstonemotors.ie. You're very welcome to wait late lunch this Monday afternoon. Brand new week on the way. Lots of guests over the next couple of hours. Let's get straight to business. She was previously based in Brussels between 2013 and 2017. Spent four years as Washington correspondent for the Irish Times 2 more recently before she moved back to Brussels with Politico, the premium news service for politics and policy. And she's with me on the line again today from Trim in the County of Meath. It's the brilliant Suzanne Lynch. Hello again, Suzanne. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining me. Do you know what I'm thinking about you? From the frying pan to the fire. <laughs> that, that is true. The news has been, uh, has been very dramatic. Yeah, I had four years covering Donald Trump and all the dramas in America and I moved back to Brussels um, about five months ago now and uh, yeah, who would have thought? I'd never thought, I have to be honest, that this story is going to emerge like this. You know, it's, it's very, very hard to believe. When I was in Brussels before, um, back, you know, around 2013, 14, 15, that was the beginning of the Ukrainian crisis. I covered it very closely. But, you know, it's hard to believe that we're now at this situation that we now have full-on invasion, a war in Europe. And uh, it, it, people here in Brussels are finding it's just, they're in shock, to be honest, and uh, very hard to believe this is happening. When you hear people saying that NATO, the EU and the US were asleep at the wheel here, what do you say to that from a, as an observer of what's happened and what's going on? Yeah, I think there is some truth in that. I think um, what you had was a, a strategy of accommodation towards Moscow for so many years. Um, I think Putin's strategy, successful strategy, has been to take a little and take a little bit more and hope that was enough to keep everyone at bay before he then launched this huge invasion. Um, so ultimately, uh, what was, we saw here at the EU level uh, again and again, um, I just was interviewing a commissioner from one of the Eastern European countries uh, that we're going to be writing about tomorrow. And those commissioners from the East have been warning about this for years, saying, you know, you're, you're being naive. Uh, the, the threat of, of, of an armed Russia, of, of a nuclear Russia, is, is there all the time, and you can't underestimate that. Um, and I think they feel a certain frustration that those warnings weren't heeded. Um, but uh, the economic links, of course, and a lot of people have said it, but it's true that, that Europe, you know, the dependency in terms of energy on Russia 
has been huge and it was a pact with the devil really that they never really sought to move away from that dependence on gas after the first invasion, you could call it that first uh, incursion into Ukraine in, around the end of 2014 um, and that they kept that lifeline going and um, I think now, now look, it's, it's completely changed now, things will never go back to the way they were but of course the question now is is it too late to stop this horrific uh, bloodshed that's happening there now? What's his ultimate goal, Suzanne? Because, you know, he talks about NATO encroaching and uh, being on Russia's borders, and this is what he doesn't want. But no matter what he does, he's going to have NATO on his border, even if he pushes right through Ukraine or ever. And if you look at the map, uh, NATO is sitting right on his doorstep in many places. What will uh, satisfy this guy in the end of the day? Well, I mean, I'm actually speaking to the said I just did an interview there, and I was it was quite sobering. The, the person I interviewed has has issued dire warnings about what might happen next. They believe that there are two two possibilities of why this, how this could escalate. One is that there could be some kind of a almost an accidental uh, spillover effect into those NATO countries that are bordering Ukraine, uh, but also that there could be a, a further move by if he could choose to go that bit further stage some kind of a false flag operation, um, which is what he, what he has suggested he would do again and again, you know, some kind of false pretenses to go into these Baltic countries, the so ones like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, kind of plant some kind of uh, staged uh, aggression towards Russia and use that as a pretext to go in. I mean, that's his game plan. So I think some people are worried that could happen. Others are hoping that he will in some way stop here but I mean the, the, the problem is this is a nuclear armed state and I think a lot of people they always said I've heard it so many times that Russia is actually quite a an underdeveloped economy you know the, the economy is about like Spain it's, it's not a huge economic power but the big difference is that it is a nuclear power and um, that's what's the worry here but some people would say we can't give in to Putin's blackmail of course he's always going to threaten nuclear action but that shouldn't be a reason either not to you know talk tough to Moscow as well because they feel that this policy of appeasement has got people nowhere um, but look the, the problem again is that the EU is not a, a military alliance NATO is a military a defensive alliance but the EU are limited in what they could do now last week they really did um, they, they really embraced the sea change and that they decided to send military lethal weapons to uh, to Ukraine now countries like Ireland had an offset effectively but that's a real sea change but where they have huge power, the EU, is economically, and they always had that. And I think the people here are disappointed, regretful, that they didn't just use that economic power sooner, cut Russia off more from its biggest customer, Europe, earlier in the day. Because compared to America, for example, it's the EU is a much bigger economic relationship with Russia. And ultimately, they weren't prepared to sacrifice that for, for years, and they, they hoped this policy of keeping them at bay would work. And as you can see now, it just didn't. Will the EU ultimately choke the supply of gas and oil into the continent from Russia, which many people are calling for now? This will cause massive pain and a huge adjustment for all of us. But if that happens, they say, it's the only way really to get to them in a peaceful way. Yeah, this is a big question now, I think, for the next few days here in Brussels, is how, what, what else do they have in their sanctions? Arsenal, pardon the imagery there. But 
they, as you say, they have, they, and they really have imposed a huge uh, amount of sanctions, unprecedented for the EU, and it's really beginning to bite. I mean, we're looking at Russia potentially becoming the new North Korea in terms of its geopolitical isolation, I think, in the future. We now have Visa, MasterCard, who have, uh, you know, stopped transactions there, massive pullout. In a way, Russia is bringing them back behind the Iron Curtain. That's what Putin is doing now. Um, but, you know, that is probably too late to stave off this full-on invasion into Ukraine. But over the next few days, the pressure is going to be on the EU to look at more sanctions. They are looking at them. They're saying that they are working on this. Um, someone made the point to me there that even with oil, for example, by even threatening to cut off Russian oil, that's already messing with the Russian oil market. You know, there's, there's huge power here, and that might be strategic. We heard a lot of commentary from Washington overnight that they were going to, uh, thinking about would they, you know, ban oil, um, and it, it's easier to do because you can diversify your supply easier. But gas is, is a big, is, is a big issue. Now, the European Commission has, has been looking into this and says it has got enough energy to see it out for this winter when you're in spring, obviously, now. Um, so I think they would be prepared to take the hit at this point. So I think that's going to be the big question, is will they have energy? There's a big summit of EU leaders happening in Versailles, just outside Paris, on Thursday and Friday. So there's going to be lots of interest in that to see what the EU leaders are going to be talking about, things like refugees as well. But I think, in terms of the sanctions, the big question is, will they be prepared to hit uh, Russian Russian energy at this point? Mm, that is the big uh, question that we uh, watch with bated breath. And I had in my notes here another pariah state which you alluded to there, and that's what it's looking like, a retreat, uh, isolation from the rest of the world. And, you know, Suzanne, what's the talk on the ground there? You mentioned about a false flag or something happening that would trigger something awful. Is there a real fear that we're on the cusp of World War Three? I think it, it's mixed. Some it depends who you talk to, and and the division here, and it is a division, is that countries who have grown up in the shadow of the former Soviet Union have a very different view. They don't trust Putin. They don't trust Russia. They they don't trust anything he says. So um, and. They feel that before there was always a strategy, uh, you know, he made calculations intellectually about what would work for him as a country. But he seems to, for whatever reason, have thrown those out the window and is prepared to go big. So I think they're fearful of how much further he'll go. And I mean, just looking at the map, I'm sure all your listeners have seen that map now, how close this is, you know, just across the border into Poland. So, for example, the talk now about these fighter jets, would Poland supply fighter jets into Ukraine? And then these are old um, Soviet, effectively, fighter jets that the Ukrainian army could use. And then the Americans would kind of backfill those fighter jets that had been sent to Ukraine. So I think those, those are the kind of things Moscow is going to be looking at very closely. Um, but, you know, the, the, the big question for Europe when we look back on this in years to come will be, should they have acted sooner on sanctions? That Would this have been a deterrent? These huge economic sanctions that are now really are going to bite, there's no question about it, if they had done those a few months earlier. Considering they were so convinced and rightly were proven right that the, an invasion was about to happen, why didn't they move early? Now, they, they would say, officials have defended that, that if they had done that, well, then Putin would have used that as an excuse. He would have accused that of being an aggressive act and then would have gone in and would have gone in stronger. Um, but look, at the end of the day, no matter how, how harsh these sanctions are going to be, it's definitely going to be too late to help uh, Ukrainian people now at the moment. 
with things looking like they're getting worse and worse in these main cities there. Mm. Putting your uh, former hat on in Washington and talking about Joe Biden, he made a very strong uh, State of the Union speech uh, the other day. I listened to it and uh, he didn't hold back, to be honest with you. But he's accused as well, as I mentioned to you at the start, about this being sleeping at the wheel. But surely America are are on high alert now at this stage. Because if anything happens, it's obvious they're part of NATO. They're, they're going to be in there. But your old nemesis, uh, Mr. Trump, do you reckon he'll change his tune now, a cheerleader for Putin? He was a cheerleader for Putin. And I mean, I think there was a lot of naivety on the Republican side about the level of disinformation. You know, the, the, the Russians, the Soviets were always well ahead of this back during the Cold War. And now in the realm of social media, they're, you know, they seek out people here in Brussels who they feel can propagate their own views. They, they sow disinformation through social media and, you know, they ma- manipulate people and people in power. Um, and Donald Trump was one of those people and Republicans. So I think there's a huge amount of naivety towards Putin, you know, at that time. But also Biden, I mean, again, standing back and looking at the big picture, we will see, you know, the invasion of Iraq was basically ended up being hugely damaging, I think, in, in that, that it, it put America off ever intervening again, when actually, arguably, this might have been the war that would have been more suitable to intervene in. You know, so the appetite, Biden is reading the public mood. There is no appetite really in America uh, to get involved in this war in Europe. But you're absolutely right, unlike in the Middle East, um, America is much closer to this because it's a member of NATO. And if any of, if there's any kind of incursion into a NATO country, the rules are an attack on one is an attack on all. So America would inevitably be brought into that war. Um, so... And I think this is why, you know, it's been very interesting that the U.S. was so vocal about its intelligence warning uh, what was going to happen, which is exactly what happened. I think the reason they did that is that they knew that if Putin went in, Ukraine was going to be on its own. And that's why they were trying everything to, to stop that, deter that. Um, and they, they knew this was going to how it was going to play out. But as you say, you're right, unless there's some kind of a, if, if the NATO countries are brought into this, then America is in. Um, but if not, they're going to, to remain outside. I don't think there's any question of them getting further involved in this war if it isn't for an NATO, some kind of an NATO invasion. Just before you go, with all your experience there previously covering this, as you said, the Ukraine back in 2014 and all that happened there, your time in the States and where you are now, what does your gut feeling tell you, Suzanne, about this? Will there be some kind of a accommodation, which there generally is after every war? Will something happen to to halt this? I don't know. The latest we've seen is there could be peace talks early next week in, in Turkey. But every so far, I think that the difficulty is the disinformation. It's very hard to know what Putin's strategy is. I mean... What is the case is that it does all come down to Putin. He, he's in the driving seat here. And um, I think what's going to be interesting now is, you know, Macron was speaking to him again. Uh, Scholz was speaking to him again, the German chancellor. And yet again, we see Russia breaking ceasefire. We've got reports of civilian assassinations, effectively. And this thing looks like it's getting worse and worse. But look, the danger is, I think, if it escalates and spills into a neighbouring country, that's, that's a big problem, because if it does, it's a, it's a whole different scenario. Mm. Um, and whether that happens, you know, accidentally or not, I think that's, that's the next worry here. Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, I believe your folks are on a visit. They are, they are. I've had my first visitors from County Meath, uh, Jerry. 
taking uh, over exactly so I'm closer to home now in Brussels which, which is yeah. great <laughs> Listen you're always close to us and you're so good to us here on LMFM Radio I have to say on the late lunch thank you so much for joining us we appreciate your time and uh, being at the heart of it there bringing us the, the very latest thanks a million Suzanne and, and good wishes to your parents Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. That's uh, Suzanne Lynch there, brilliant journalist from Trim in County Mead, working with Politico uh, in the heart of matters in Brussels at the moment. Uh, My God, it's a real worrying situation because that's my big fear, I have to say, that something just happens in a NATO country and if it does, well, all hell will break loose, that's for sure. Let's pray that uh, diplomacy wins out sooner rather than later. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio still to come. We will be talking to the Head of Fundraising with the Irish Red Cross and you've been marvellous, honestly. You've been marvellous because here in LMFM and on our sister stations, you know that we've raised in excess of €33,000 so far, thanks to you and your contributions. But Charlie Lampson is talking to us after two on the show. Stay with us on Late Lunch. I want to say a big congratulations to two ladies who are regular guest Louise of ours on the show and have been over the years for their acknowledgement at the weekend uh, for being heroines of the Irish food scene. Uh, The Irish Times picked 50 women across Ireland and two from the North East. Maria Flynn from Ballamakenny Farm. Congratulations, Maria. And Kristen Jensen who's uh, just uh, set up the new publishing uh, label, Blaster Books. Oh, but she's been yeah, yeah, but she's been involved in food for years and years here. But congratulations to both of them to be selected there and honoured by the Irish Times. It, it's a wonderful, wonderful achievement. It I really believe is. our own Yemi Adenuka as well was honoured in the Irish Times was as she? well. For, you know, they were, they were obviously talking about women ahead of International Women's yes, Day tomorrow. Yes, yes. And Yemi's with us tomorrow yes. on the show to celebrate uh, International Women's Day. It's women all the way on late lunch tomorrow. I think I'll have to hand <laughs> over the microphone to yourself and get out of the way tomorrow, will I? I think no, I might I just have so, to. <laughs> will you? Will you? Will you? Will you? Will you? Will you tolerate me tomorrow when it's your special day? Ashley, it's just might. You just might. Did you hear about this ship that sank? Uh, uh, um, near the Azores off the coast of Portugal. Did you hear this one? No. no. A ship sunk, went on fire and guess what it was carrying? Cars. Luxury cars. <gasps> a lot of them. Oh, I did, yeah. And the it's... ship is 3,000 feet down on the seabed at the moment with, are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. This must be the most valuable shipwreck ever. 362 million worth of cars on board at the bottom of the sea. Wow. Isn't that something else? 3,000 feet there. I think they'll never see the light of day again for sure. My God almighty. What kind of cars? Was it all like Ferraris? Oh yeah, there was all different premium makes and that on it. Incredible, so it was. Expensive submarines. Oh my God (laughs) almighty. What what an accident. What a cost. What a loss that actually is. Huge, huge amount of money. Anyway, I'm sure there'll be people wondering can they get down there. 3,000 feet? No, I don't think so. Put it out of your heads for the moment. Thank you indeed for your comments. Keep them coming to us. 086-1800-65. and uh, so many just saying how saddened they are watching the pictures on TV. It is very, very difficult to watch, I have to say. And really, uh, many people just can't watch the news at the moment because you are seeing in real time war actually happening on the ground, which probably never happened before, facilitated by the uh, new wave of communications there's been since the last 
massive pogrom on uh, European soil back in World War Two. Not uh, ignoring the Balkans either or what happened there. I'm staying with Ukraine for the moment because I'm joined on the line by the head of fundraising with the Irish Red Cross, Charlie Lampson. Afternoon, Charlie. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. Delighted to have you with us on the show. Can you just explain to listeners, because I mentioned it quite early on when the conflict began, that the Red Cross was a magnificent way of getting aid directly into the areas uh, where it's needed. Why do you have that advantage? Yeah, thanks for the question, and it's a good one. I mean, the unique character of the Red Cross is that it's an international uh, organization with members in countries throughout the world. So, I mean, to give you a sense of the scale, there's 14 million Red Cross volunteers globally. And the way that the Irish Red Cross works is we work in concert with all of those different uh, national societies. So if you are in Ukraine, if you are in the Red Cross in Poland, uh, in Moldova, in Romania, in Hungary that are accepting uh, refugees coming across the border, of which we estimate right now there are about a million people doing just that, we're able to channel the funds that are raised in Ireland to those organizations and get the money to the staff that are there to be able to provide food, to provide water, to provide medical assistance and provide shelter for people that, you know, frankly, 10 days ago had a home and a neighborhood, you know, and a family and and the whole situation. So you can only imagine. Yes, yes. Oh, it's it's horrendous, and and that is really an important point to bear in mind. It goes directly to the Red Cross people on the ground who need it today, who need it immediately. What about exactly. your people in the Ukraine? My God Almighty, Charlie! Uh, people with you know the best of intentions in the midst of war, they are so brave. It's unbelievable. I can't even begin to fathom. Uh, the bravery that that's being displayed there. I mean, I know when it first started, we were in communication with the Ukraine Red Cross, and they were hunkered down in basements, you know, just trying to trying to you know just to stay safe. Uh, but in the midst of that, they are coming out and and doing everything that they can to help people in a situation that that chaos is is absolutely the name of the game. So it's the work they're doing is something to be celebrated. That is for sure. You mentioned the satellite countries around the Ukraine there as well. They are so important that they receive the assistance with the outflow of people. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and it's, you know, again, going back to just the, the speed that this thing has had to come together. One, one of the things I would flag up in this conversation is that there are a lot of people looking to give, you know, and quite appropriately looking to give food, to give clothing, to give mm. different items of that sort. And the problem is that the situation is so fluid that there is no, you know, there's, if you think about the logistics of that, of there is no place on the ground. There's no, there's no centers yet set up. They're working to build these as quickly as they can. But at this point, you know, we're, we're concerned about people giving those things, and then it's just piling up. So the, 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 there's a lot of focus in putting this together. But the best way that people can help right now is to give financial support so that then the Red Cross can take that money and, and you know, use that uh, to, you know, purchase the things that we need to get the staff where we need to be, to get the vehicles where we need them to be, etc. So are you saying, Charlie, to people today, and this is a good point to build on, yep. people have the best of intentions. People feel helpless. Exactly. They helpless. No, they yeah. just want to give. So are you saying to yeah. people that, say, for example, clothes and food or that, you would be better, would you say, uh, doing a fundraiser and, and you know, uh, turning that into cash that can then be donated? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and again, I, I, to your point, with the very best of intentions, yep. I do understand how many people want to do that. 
But just given the, the, the speed and the fluidity of the situation there, cash right now is the thing that, that those communities need more than anything. It's just, you know, those, those, uh, the volunteer societies that are there doing that. I think as time, you know, quickly we will be able to start supporting in-kind donations of the type that we're describing. But at this point, the facility just is not there. Okay, and that's important to say. And of course, you have the logistics. And I know hauliers are providing trucks, you know, transport across the Irish Sea and beyond has been provided and everything has been done like that. But you make the point that at the moment there are other logistical difficulties in Ukraine and surrounding Ukraine that will work themselves out, but just not at the moment. Now, the response you've got has been phenomenal. Unbelievable. It's it's quite a... It's just, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, we're we're actually at twelve million euro raised um, now in the past ten days, and that's public support. That doesn't in, include the incredible corporate support that that's gone in as well, which I could describe. But that twelve million is from people giving, you know, five euro, twenty euro, whatever that is. They're donating that. It just is. It's a statement into itself of of the solidarity that people in Ireland have with the situation and the people in Ukraine. It's it's quite incredible. Isn't that an enormous amount yeah. of money for a little nation? You know, of what five yeah. million people. See, it's to so- give you some perspective on that, um, the, the the international objective or goal of, of of the international Red Cross is to raise two hundred and fifty million, right? Internationally, mm. so a country now of five million have raised twelve. Mm. Just from the public donations, percentage-wise, is incredible. I mean, so Ireland, there's the old adage of Ireland hitting above its weight, and, and here's a, yet another example of that. It, it is, it's really incredible. It certainly is. And I just want to mention that here on LMFM and our group of sister stations here in Ireland, we are supporting you in the Irish Red Cross, yeah. and we have a link on our LMFM website, and the other stations have as well, that you can just click on and donate. And i just tell you, that fund has gone over €37,000 as we speak, and we thank everybody who has donated there. But uh, look, you, you, are, you are doing a fantastic job in unprecedented times again. God God Almighty, Charlie! I never thought I'd see this in my mm. lifetime. What? But and we're potentially on, on on worse. I don't like saying that, but it can get worse, and it probably will. I, I, yeah, I mean, one can only imagine. So you know, we're all we're all thinking about that. Mm. Um, but listen, I will say, you know, the, the, the support that you all have provided and, and getting the word out for this is invaluable, and we're grateful to you for it. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck with your work and uh, thanks for explaining in uh, very clear terms what direct donations mean and that it is going to the people most in need in Ukraine and in the surrounding countries as well. We wish you well with all your great work. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on the show. That's Charlie Lampson there, the head of fundraising. Isn't that something? We are a great nation. I give out and I, I, I lambaste things and people at times on this show, but we are a great nation and a generous nation and a giving nation. I have to say that as well. And, you know, my God almighty, you, you, you just sit as I feel, like most of you probably helpless with this, but we all can do something. We can. And those little fundraisers, they're good ideas and to support the Irish Red Cross directly. Peter's been in touch to say, I'm not going around today, Jerry, with you, but I'll keep it short. He says, what about the people in Gaza, Yemen, Somalia, 
Um, not too much reporting around the world about those people and the deaths and casualties in those countries. Uh, Jerry, America has a short memory. When Russia put nukes in Cuba or were going to in the 60s, uh, the Americans threatened Russia. Uh, the Russians pulled back at that stage. Uh, but now it's OK for them to push into Ukraine and expect Russia to do nothing. Look, Peter, I make the point that I made to Suzanne Lynch uh, a few moments ago on the show. Where will be enough? NATO is in Europe, an alliance of countries that surround the Soviet Union. It's just the way the geography falls. What does he want? A Europe totally free of any deterrent and that Russia has all the deterrents. Is that what he wants? Where do you stop? How far does he push in? You know what I mean? Like, think about it. He push right across the whole continent. And, you know, I'm not joking when I say that. I'm dead in earnest. And I put my cards on the table again and I say to people, this is my view on this. I was born in Ireland, a democratic country. And we fought for a dem- democracy here. And I have freedoms. I am not totally enamoured with the Western system and it has many flaws and we've had many awful things happen. But at the end of the day, I look at the way I've lived my life and many other Irish men and women and Europeans and people in America and other parts of the world and we want to live in peace and freedom and enjoy our lives. We don't want to be restricted in what we can say. We don't want to be in prison for telling the truth. We don't want to live in a society with no freedoms that's controlled by a few people at the top and everybody else cows down. I do not want to live in that. And that's what I stand for. And that's what I think the majority of people on this continent uh, continent of ours stands for as well. Freedoms in life, in religious practice, in our sexuality, in what we do with our lives. We, they're the freedoms I want to live with. I do not want to live under the Russian system, under the Chinese system, under the North Korean system. I do not want it. It's as simple as that. And I feel terrible for the people who are trapped within those regimes. And it's quite clear in my mind, that's the way I believe and feel about it. And we need to take a stand. It's as simple as that. We've got to take a stand at this time. Enough is enough. And that's my view for what it's worth. If you have a view, I'd love to hear from you. 086-1800-658. WhatsApp or text me to the show. It'll come straight into me here in studio. That's 086-1800-658 if you have anything to say. I mentioned a few moments ago in the context of my chat with Charlie Lampson and he mentioned it too, the generosity of the Irish people. And we're calling on your generosity again now. And I know you won't let us down because we're heading Carrick McCrossway to have a chat with Jean Woods. Hello, Jean. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Your son, Stephen, tell us his story, please. Um, Stephen took sick uh, December last year. He had pain in his head and vomiting in a stiff neck. And we took him to the doctors and uh, we just thought maybe it was a bit of stress in his neck and they gave us anti-inflammatories and sent us home. So Stephen turned 18 on the 22nd of December and... um, we were going down with the balloons, we were going for the meal and he says, I said, Stephen, do you need to go to the hospital? He was like, no, no, it's my 18th birthday, I don't want to spend it, me and I'll be fine. So 
So as we went to get ready to go, we said, no, ma'am, I need to go to hospital. I'm not good. So we went up to Our Lady of Lourdes and we spent his 18th birthday up there. And after several hours, we were sent home with more anti-inflammatories. And um, they said that they didn't have any reason to think that there was anything wrong with his brain or anything. So all over Christmas, as you can imagine, an 18-year-old mad to go out and mad with his friends and me giving mm. out from coming in so late. He never went out. He never left the house all over Christmas. Mm. All he wanted was um, cups of tea, hot water bottles and into the bath. So I said, Stephen, we have to go back up to hospital. He was like, no, Mum, I don't want to sit up there for hours again. So the 6th of January, I uh, called an ambulance. And um, at that stage, we were taken back up and... They suggested maybe sending them home with another month's supply of anti-inflammatories this time. And I just said, no, I wasn't happy with it. My child took some kind of seizure and he was looking through me and didn't recognise me. That maybe it was an aneurysm or a blood clot or something. And they said, well, we don't like doing scans in young people's heads because radiation can put cancer into their head. So at that, we were sent back up to the waiting room and Stephen went into another seizure. At that, then he was rushed back down into A&E and... Um, they said that he was he turned eighteen at that stage, so I wasn't allowed down with him. So I was standing up the corridor. So after a few hours, they told me to go on home that they were admitting him. And at ten o'clock the next morning, they phoned me to come back up. And when I went back up, they told me that they found a large mast. They had to do the scan on Stephen, and they found a large mast in the back of his head that they they were unsure of what it was at that stage. But we were being transferred to Beaumont. So when we went to Beaumont, then um, because Stephen was turned 18 then, he was classed as an adult. I wasn't allowed in with him. So uh, he went through all this on his own. And on the Saturday, they diagnosed him with a large brain tumour and he was going to have to go for an emergency surgery. So on Monday, Stephen went for a seven and a half hour surgery and they successfully removed 50% of the brain tumour, which was really, really positive for us. Mm. So then for all week to see could I get in and see him with PP gear, look through a window, anything I parked in the car park for five days, crying, bringing TDs, doing everything I could as a mother because he was never in hospital or sick in his life. And now he's gone through the largest thing in his life and he's on his own. So then um, the following Monday, the 17th, he went back in for a second surgery, which was nine and a half hours. And uh, they removed another 45% of the tumour. So we're really positive at this stage. So Stephen, then two days later, went back in for another three-hour surgery, which was 19 and a half hours surgery in total. And um, they, they fitted him with a shunt, and they shunted there for life to drain the brain. Mm-hmm. So uh, the doctor consultant told us at that stage that um, the last 5% was the bit that was incurable, that they were going to do radio and chemo on it. But it wasn't going to go away. It was just going to put it in bay because it was in the stem of the brain at this stage. So as you can imagine, my son turned around and said, well, am I going to die? And he says, I can't tell you you're not going to die, but your life is going to be shortened. And we came home the journey back down to Manhattan and nobody talked in the car. We were going to be really positive that day, but when we heard it was incurable... But we got ourselves strong and picked ourselves back up and went, right, we'll do radio and chemo and we'll go for this. So we went back up then the following Wednesday for a consultation with the chemo and radio consultant. And he proceeded to say that Stephen's pains was going to come back 10 times worse than what they were and that he was going to be very sick and he was going to lose his behaviour and his memory and his personality. And probably within three weeks, he wouldn't know me. 
and it was going to be harder on me than him. But as a mother, I don't mind it being harder on me if Stephen was going to be well after all of this. But Stephen was still going to have cancer. It was only going to put it at bay. It wasn't going to save him. So um, I was going to put him through all of this for nothing. And then there was no other option to do after this. So I came home and I done my research. And I applied to Germany, Boston, Chicago, Texas. Anywhere out there that could give my son treatment on a chance at life. Like, he's only 18. Hasn't even been out for his first legal pint. You know, you're going to fight for Everton to mm. save your child. Yes. So Germany said no. And that was an awful kick in the guts. And I took that bad. I thought, right, well, we have to go further. So we we paid for a consultation with Boston and Texas. And we've known of another young fellow from Johnny Gall that's been to Texas and is doing wonderful. And we got a consultation with Texas. And it was so, so positive. And it cost a lot of money. That was the downside of it. But what price can you put on your child's life? None. None. It's priceless. So uh, you have to put up the best fight. Yeah. Things have, as I said, in life, things have never been easy, thank God, or I actually wouldn't know what to do. My mum was killed by a drunk driver when Stephen was six weeks old, and I put up a fight then to take on all my wee brothers, and I reared them all on my own here as a lone parent. And then I lost my baby brother last year too. He was only 25 to suicide. But there were knocks on the door, and I couldn't save them. Mummy was 42 and my brother was 25. But my 18-year-old son... I'm willing to take on the world and fight everything I have. My God <laughs> almighty. To save him. He's lost his eyesight in the left side and he's lost the outside of the right eyesight. He's got a little bit of an, a middle bit in the right of his eye but it pints into his nose. He's lost the feeling down his left side. But all of that is manageable. All of that, of that is manageable and I do believe there is a cure right there for him and I just... I'm not going to give up until I just can't lose him too. Jean, of course you're not going to give up and you're going to go to the ends of the earth, which you are doing, to bring him for this treatment. So Texas is a real option for you. You mentioned that young boy in Donegal, he's 14 and he's doing well with a similar condition. So where are you now with the Texas? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What, what, where does it Texas, stand? Texas... Texas offers a treatment which involves several medications, possibly a slight bit of chemotherapy. It's a targeted drug which includes your DNA and your genetic testing to identify exactly what is the best option for Stephen's uh, brain tumour. There will be a lot of scans and tests done in the USA before a decision is made on Stephen's exact Mm. treatment. So... They're, they're, we, if we raise the first 120,000, yes. Stephen and I can go out and start treatment, but the okay. treatment is up in 300,000. Like, I'm as a lone parent, and no matter how hard I walk, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this on my own. And mm. I hate reaching out to ask anyone. I'm the most proud, independent mother you'll ever come across. I walk hard, but I'm out of work at the minute, and now I'm trying to raise 300,000 to save my son. I, and people are magic. People are so, so kind, and the donations and prayers and candles and messages, like, people are so, so kind. But Tarek McCross can't do it on our own. We just need to get it out to the nation. Mm. So how much have you now? You have got a lot of money so far. Yes, there's 50, I think it's 52,000 in yes. it now at the moment. And you're not long on the road with this no. at all. So no. it's looking really positive. And yes. they'll, 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 uh, in the meantime, is he is he receiving any treatment here in Ireland or care at no. the moment? No, he's, no he's, on a, he's on a lot of medication that, you know, for anti-seizure. And yes. Because obviously the brain tumour is still growing in his head. Yeah. And is he is he in hospital or home at the minute? No, he's home. He's, he's home, home thank okay. God. Because Grand. when he was in hospital, I wasn't allowed to see him. I know, and I wasn't I know, allowed in. But no, thank God he's mm. home. And he's so brave. He's, yes. You know, he's in great spirits. He's so witty. He's a great character. Mm. You know, he's so, so witty and he's so witty. But like, we have to just, you know, remember that this tumour is still growing. It is rare, aggressive tumour is still growing in his head. Yes. Yes. But like we go and do this treatment and it's proven 20, 30 years and then you can go and get radium after 30 years if need be. But at the moment, yeah. it's not the option. Okay. So how soon can Texas take you? Texas can take us ASAP. But okay. Stephen hadn't got his vaccine. And thank God, because I probably would have blamed it. But Stephen didn't have his vaccine. So we only got his first vaccine last week. Okay. So we have to wait 20, another two weeks now at this stage and then five days after that and okay. then we'll be good to go. Okay. So you have a GoFundMe page and this is where this money is coming in. Tell yes. listeners today, how do they access that GoFundMe page to give you a few bob? There is an, a GoFundMe page and there's a Facebook page I was also made for Steve's journey to recovery. Yes. And there's buckets put all around the town in different shops. Now, that will be, there's a meeting, a public meeting on Wednesday to organise a committee. So things will go out there now. We're just at the start of it now of trying to put it out there. But there is a Facebook page and there is buckets and there is a GoFundMe GoFundMe page. as well. And it's Stephen's Road to Recovery. Steve O's Road Steve to Recovery. Steve O's. Steve O's Road to Recovery. Steve o- No, sorry. Steve O's Journey to Recovery. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Sorry, sorry. No, no, no. We won't confuse it. We'll get it right. Don't worry. Uh, Stephen's... Uh, I know. Look at you're under such pressure and you're all over the shop at this. I understand it. Stephen's Journey to Recovery. Yeah. Now, that's it, folks. Stephen's Journey to Recovery. Facebook and GoFundMe there if you can help at all every euro builds the fund and gets to that magic number as well so we'd all do anything for them wouldn't we that we could you'd go to the ends of the earth that's what you're going to do Gene Woods 
Yes, it is indeed. It is indeed. I just have to save my boy and I appreciate people's kindness. People, I'm just overwhelmed by people's yeah. kindness. I can't thank. And if there was ever anyone I would help, I'd do anything for anyone to repay all the help that I've got. Yes. I really, really am overwhelmed by people's kindness. They're just magic. Jean, that magic is going to continue and you and your boy will be in Texas, Stephen. We wish you well and thank you for joining me on the show today. I hope this little bit helps to boost that fun for you. Thank you very much, Jerry. Have a lovely day. You too. Take care of yourself. God bless. Take care. My God, hasn't that woman had some trials and tribulations in her life? Jerry, that poor woman, says another listener, broke my heart. I'm praying for Stephen and I'm going to donate. I hope he makes it. Thanks indeed for, for that lovely message. Jackie's been on to say, Jerry, the bravery of the Ukrainian people is simply unbelievable, and especially their president. I hope they can overcome. Putin and all he stands for. Thanks indeed for that, Jackie. Keep them coming to us. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. Now, tomorrow is International Women's Day and the theme this year is hashtag breaking the bias. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by uh, a lady who's a regular of ours now on Late Lunch. Fiona Buckley is a work behaviourist and HR specialist and she's with me. Good afternoon again, Fiona. Good afternoon, Jerry. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks for taking uh, the uh, call from us this afternoon. Can I ask you this first? You know, the, the theme, hashtag breaking the bias. Yeah. For, for you, what is this theme all about this year? Yeah, so breaking the bias, let me kind of explain bias because sometimes people have a kind of misconception what it is. And biases can be like conscious where you're absolutely aware of it or unconscious, which means you're kind of engaged in behaviors that you're not actually aware of. And a bias can be innate. It's in you all the time or you can learn it. So if you're working in an organization that has bias against other people, you can actually learn that in a cultural way. So, for example, people might develop a bias because somebody is a particular age or a particular gender or from a specific location. Um, And you can have biases for all sorts of different things, but it can be that learned behavior or it can be just in in you. And, you know, we're, we're slowly trying to strive towards this kind of gender equal world. And the breaking the bias for this theme for International Women's Day this year is all around striving towards a gender equal world. And that really is a workplace full of, you know, free of bias stereotypes and discrimination. And we're trying to really promote that inclusivity. Now, the pandemic hasn't helped this, Jerry, to be honest with Mm. you. I think it's been one step forward, two steps back. And, you know, Um, sorry, just lost you there. Go on ahead. Yep. Yeah, no, from the pandemic perspective, it's been like two steps, uh, you know, one step forward, two steps back, because we were striving towards kind of breaking a lot of this bias. And then the pandemic happened and a lot of people were placed in their home environment working away from everybody. So I don't think the pandemic has been a friend of this breaking the bias thing. And you would say then uh, by extension that it impacted more on women than men. Well, I think it's impacted everybody in different ways. And I I think it's not a one size fits all. I mean, some people who were living on their own, male or female, really struggled in this type of environment. Mm. And then some people with a very busy house who were caring for elderly parents or neighbours or kids had an equally tough time as well. But the visibility piece for sure impacted women more than it did men. And, you know, and I'm speaking very generally here, of course, Jerry, it's not going to affect everybody, but generally feeling that little bit more invisible and, you know, not maybe having enough time for boundaries and self-care and our imposter syndrome and inner critic fired up a lot more during the pandemic. 
And pre-pandemic, if you can imagine, we're surrounded by people, right? We're in busy environments all the time. For the last two years, instead of being surrounded by people, we've been surrounded by our thoughts. And as you sure you well know, Jerry, that can be a good or a bad place, let's face it, right? So it really depends on what's going on. But women are more prone to that inner critic and imposter syndrome. And depending on what statistics we kind of follow, about 80 to 85% of women will have that imposter syndrome at some point. And many had this back in the pandemic because they were second guessing themselves a lot more. They didn't have that colleague to kind of, you know, run by an idea, but with after a meeting, they were in that solitude in their home environment for for those that worked remotely. So our thoughts kind of got quite heavy sometimes. And, you know, men are probably about 40, 45 percent of men will get that imposter syndrome. So automatically in half, we it's stacked against us. So I think that was a, a difficult thing for women. And we just got more sucked into that home environment. And mm. those thoughts might not have been the best thing. And I've said it in the past here with no disrespect to uh, lots and lots of wonderful men who share the burden. And and many men take uh, the greater part of it as well, where it works in relationships and homes and, and working arrangements. But it still has to be said that when, you know, there's difficulties with children, say they're sick at school or they have to be minded or the baby minder isn't available, something happens in the crash. I, I don't think I'm overstepping the market to say generally it's the mam or the woman who has to, you know, leave the work and, 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 and jump in and, and, and take the reins. You know what I'm getting at, Fiona? And I ask oh, you the question, yeah. how can we, you know, and, and there's a bias because of that. You know, you, I've heard it in my lifetime and I'll be honest about it here. Man, just saying, oh, sure, they have children and they, they have to look after that first. And, you know, you know what I'm getting yeah. at? How can we change that? I do. And speaking personally, I have a four year old daughter, Jerry, and anytime she's sick, all, all, it's, all she is the wants is me. Yes. I <laughs> so, know. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely the case. And there is a bias against that. And I'll give you an example. Um, I was coaching a, a leader in a business recently, and he said to me, um, he completely fell under the bias bus, as I said, because he was coaching a lady and she was looking for a promotion in the company. And he said to me, Well, I know she's newly separated and she's three kids, so that's her priority. Now, that's a bias. OK, yes. that's a stereotype and that's a bias. He didn't say it to her, but he said it to me and we had to work through that bias because he didn't give her the, the, the chance to go for that promotion because of something like that. Now, that's a classic example of things that happen. This happened 10, 15 years ago. The problem, Jerry, it's still happening. Mm, and do you feel there's a, 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 a will among in, in companies uh, philosophy and way of operating and more particular with managers to, you know, overcome that bias and, and, and work, work through this and get rid of it. I really do. And it takes everybody in an organization to change this because largely it's a culture of acceptance, isn't it? When you accept behaviors and kind of discriminatory or biased comments to happen, it has to be driven by the top. If it's a lip service kind of policy that's put in place or training just to tick the box, it's never going to work. But it has to be driven by the top. And there is a load of male and female supporters of this in organization. But it's a multi-tongued approach driven by the top. It's bottom up. It's training. It's cultural change. And it's making leaders responsible to create that kind of permissioning environment so it's safe for someone to put their hand up if they feel they haven't been treated right over a promotion or in a meeting or something like that. If you don't have that kind of safe environment, you're never going to put up your hand and you'll just end up exiting the organisation ultimately. So I think largely organisations are trying to do a lot, but it takes more than just a policy. It takes more than training. It, it really takes a lot to get this 
through in organisations. Isn't that a tragedy where you can't and you can't put up yeah. uh, your hand or anything? You know what I mean? To say that, that is awful to think that that would be a culture in an organisation that that can't happen. And really, you know, there has to be champions. There has to be people, you know what I mean, who are going to make the difference, make the change, break the bias here ultimately. What about your own uh, role and perhaps a, a role of somebody within a company who's a mentor or a coach to somebody who's, yeah. you know, you know uh, come, come up against this? Yeah, and I think there's a massive case for mentoring and coaching. It's been a very popular thing for at least the last 15, 20 years. But on foot of the pandemic, mentoring and coaching has really grown because it's a very good outlet for people to talk about issues and challenges that they're facing in work. Mentoring is often someone from your organization, but it can be someone from outside of the organization too. And it's the same with coaching. So it can be just helpful for that outlet or for them to see something from a different perspective. Because sometimes you might feel there's a bias against you, but it can actually be in your own head. So when you talk things out, that can really help via mentoring and coaching. And secondly, I think everybody has a responsibility, male and female, no matter what age you are, to be kind of allies of each other in the workplace. And this is so much more important as we kind of move back into the kind of workforce in the hybrid way. But allies are people who have your back and they second your idea or champion your idea, for example, in a meeting, because you might feel you're very quiet in work and you finally come up with an idea in a meeting and nobody kind of jumps on that idea. You feel terrible then for bringing it up. But an ally is somebody and maybe it's a male ally that says, actually, Fiona has a really good point in that meeting. Can we go back to that and let's talk about it in more detail? And if you've got someone who's more senior than you and is being an ally in your back, it's giving you a second voice. And that's really important as we try to break the bias. You mentioned there about the return to the workplace and we've spoken about it here, of course, before. You know, for somebody who, you know, uh, agrees an arrangement with their employer and, and gets the majority of the week to work from home and, you know, tips in and out of the office as needs be. Isn't there a fear there, uh, you know, for men and women, but let's talk about women today, that out of sight, out of mind and that your uh, career's at a dead end? This kind of principle of out of sight, out of mind is a very real thing, Jerry, because when you're not physically in the office and everybody else is, you can feel like that as as a disadvantage. When everyone was out of the office in the height of lockdowns, we were all in the same Mm. boat, but we're not now. And certain people are saying, look, I actually want to be at home. Say, for example, women who do have children might say, look, I prefer actually to be at home. So when they come home from school, I might be there. Now, a, a male might decide that either. But what I'm hearing and, you know, my ears to the ground a lot with organizations at the moment, what I'm hearing is we need to be very careful that a, a significant portion of women don't decide to do that because that will be more than two steps back in this because they will feel that lack of visibility that's there. So it's a real issue. It's one we have to keep tabs on. Uh, before we finish up, a couple of pointers on this, maybe from you as well. What about some practical tips for individuals listening to us today that, that you know, that can help them in the workplace if they feel, you know, that they uh, there is a bias against them or if there are others listening who work with people who feel, look, uh, I feel a bit powerless here to help somebody else. What can I do? Yeah. And having a support network is very important here where you can actually talk to someone who possibly knows about this. So having that mentor, having that coach, having a trusted conversation with a colleague. But it's really important that we call this out when we see it, but only when it's that safe environment. Sometimes if we if we see these kind of biases or behaviors happening and we're afraid to call it out, then that's very different. But we want to be that kind of champion for change every single person. So support network is very important and making sure 
when you look at your networking organizations that you work in, do you have allies? Do you have advocates? And we tend to collect advocates in our career, Jerry. They're, they're people who will speak highly of us when we're not in the room. Mm. So it's important that we all as individuals look as we go back into the kind of that hybrid or maybe we're fully back in work. Look at our network. Do we need to add people to that do we need to, you know, get involved in, in a free mentoring program that's really for women? And actually a shout out to two organizations that are really strong in the mentoring space are uh, the PWN, the Professional Women's Network in Ireland. And the second one is Network Ireland. They have county specific um, groups and they all have mentoring programs. So for anyone listening today that doesn't have a mentor in their organization or really feel they'd like one, there's a lot of those associations out there. You just join your membership fee and you can avail of mentoring. They're two very good recommendations, I have to say, because I am familiar with them. Finally, this is a thought that I've just uh, run through my head as, as, as you're talking to me there. You know, when you take a large organisation with a big HR department, maybe a, a, a multinational or something, or a big national company here in Ireland, you get the impression, you know, with their size and their HR and their policies, etc. Well, you know, there shouldn't be a bias in there. And then you look maybe to the smaller one, lesser numbers where there's not a HR department, it's just a manager or, you know what I'm getting at, that the, the, the yep. challenge is greater there. What's your commentary on that? So with the large organizations, they often have actually somebody in charge of diversity inclusion. That's the one plus. So they might have a, a diversity inclusion department or an individual that sole responsibility is to look after this diversity agenda. Now, obviously, the bigger you go, the more people you have. In a smaller type of organization, this role is very much down to the individual managers and the leaders of the organization. So if they're okay and they're spotting these kind of things and making sure it's not there, then it's fine. So it all depends on that leadership and management style in the small organization. But the bigger you go, the more complex it gets. But it just means they have more access to training and things around this to help. Fiona, listen, you're brilliant as usual. FionaBuckley.com. Talk to you next month. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me. That's Fiona Buckley there, ahead of International Women's Day tomorrow. We're heading to Delvin in County Westmeath now, where Hazel Revington is standing by to tell me about a gruesome discovery. Hello, Hazel. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Oh, my God. I'm sickened at this when I hear it. Buzzards, I love looking at them. You do, too. Tell our listeners what you came across. My brother phoned me. I've been taking photographs of these buzzards in the area for a few years now. And my brother phoned me on Saturday and said, have you seen any buzzards lately? And I said, one, today. And he said, well, you're not going to. He said, because I've found four of them dead in the field. And they look like they've been shot. Um, it just, it's awful because they're... They're, they're such an addition to the ecological system. There's absolutely no reason for anybody to kill a buzzard. Mm, and they've been growing in numbers and proliferating. And even round where I live, I'm familiar with them too. And I, I love to see them. Um, you've reported this, I know, this morning to the Garda and the uh, National Parks and Wildlife Service. Yeah. Have you heard anything back yet from either? No, no I've, I've spoken to the the person in charge of the wildlife in this area and she was going to go down to the area and look at the birds and just, you know, try and find out have they, have they been shot or poisoned and also to rule out in case it was avian flu. But 
they're in a straight line. To me, it looks like they were shot. So somebody shot them and then put them there in a line, placed them... I'd say they landed just Ah, in a line. I'd say someone just waited for them and... Right. Yeah, and just took them out. So um, you you strong well, not uh, verified yet, but you strongly suspect that they were shot, and they are protected yeah. species. You're not Absolutely. allowed to shoot them. How long do you reckon they're there? Any idea? A few weeks or days or? I'd say there. I'd say a few weeks because they have decayed. Yeah. So it, it would have happened a few weeks ago. My God Almighty, I don't understand people. You know, you've no. seen it with the eagles as well and other species that, you know, have been gunned down and poisoned, etc. It, it doesn't add up to me. No, but um, it's hard to believe that anyone would do it. It is. And I know Niall Hatch, a friend of ours, has been commenting on this as well today uh, to say, you know, this is suspicious and wrong. And he's hoping that the investigation will reveal actually what happened to them. Um, so, so there's still one, at least one flying around in the I area. I saw two and hopefully they'll breed. Um, okay. uh, ho- hopefully there's more... It, like the sky was so blue yesterday and I could hear two calling and answering each other and it's the most amazing feeling to to hear that sound. They're mm. incredible birds. Like they can fly at a speed of 28 miles per hour so it's actually quite hard to get a decent photograph of them yes. no matter how good your lens is. I and know. They can, they can soar up to a thousand metres mm. which is incredible. Like they're incredible birds. They are shy because I know they stay ahead of you. You'll often see them, but they'll they'll move away from you. It's very, yeah. very difficult to get close to them. But I know you have lovely uh, pictures that you took uh, previously of them yeah. flying around as well. And it must really hit you hard when you see oh, the when scene. I, when I went down to, to, to just see what happened, the feeling in my heart, the grief, it's huge grief to see four magnificent birds mm. dead in the field. Like it's... it's it is hard to believe that anyone would would do that to nature. You know, because people see the crows and the pigeons that we've too many, and they eat the crows and the pigeons. So for everybody left things alone, nature will balance itself. It's they, a, they eat the mice. Yes, it's a pecking order. You're right, yeah. and, and people don't understand that. But there's blackguards out there who just don't care and have no feeling yeah. and no care, and we know that. They're in the minority for sure, but yeah. they do exist. If anybody knows anything, uh, not far from Delvin. It, that's yeah, just Cronestown. The, okay, that's Grand Cronestown. Yeah. Yes, I know, I, I'm familiar with it. I often pass it there on my way going fishing. Yes, so <laughs> Cronestown near Delvin is... Is the townland there that you uh, uh, might have seen them or noticed anything? Any bit of information will help. I wish you well. Thank you for highlighting it, Hazel. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on All the right, show bye today. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's Hazel Revington there. Bad scramps to them anyway, whoever they were. Leave them alone and let them enjoy the freedom of the skies. Uh, also, back to the Ukraine, you know that we are supporting the Irish Red Cross Ukraine Crisis Appeal. The fighting and shelling continues. Grave humanitarian consequences. I don't have to remind you. Women and children are suffering. They don't even have the basic human essentials. You can donate right now on lmfm.ie forward slash aid. Drogheda and District Chamber are holding a virtual webinar this Thursday at one o'clock entitled Saving Time and Money with smart business processes. And if you know that things could be done better in your business but don't know where to start, expert Ashley Bell will share insights and techniques to help you eliminate waste and start saving time and money immediately. For more information, contact Brenda at drawhattachamber.ie or visit drawhattachamber.ie for more details. Summary action, I have to tell you. 
to uh, my uh, interview with uh, Jean Woods a little earlier on on the show. I ain't one bit surprised about our son Stephen. I'm bawling here listening to Stephen's mam, Jerry. God love them. Please God, he will get the treatment he needs. I have a son of the same age and I can only imagine what she's going through. Donating and sharing. Best wishes to them all. Thank you indeed for that. Hello, Jerry. I will pray for Stephen and his mam, Jean. Uh, they are both so brave. Please, God, Stephen will get to Texas for his treatment. I'm going to donate to Stephen's fundraising appeal. Another Jean, that is, from Carrick McCross. Thank you, Jean. And many people asking us uh, how to donate. Uh, it's Stephen's Journey to Recovery uh, on Facebook and Steve-O's Journey to Recovery. Steve-O, sorry, I want to clarify that. It's Steve-O's Journey to Recovery. To recovery. S-T-E-V-O-S. Steve-O's Journey to Recovery. If you'd like to support, and by God, do they deserve all the support uh, they get. It's a big chance to go to Texas for care and treatment. And please God, they'll get the money that they need to take him there. Now, uh, my uh, soundtrack this week, let me tell you about it. Uh, It's a belter which has sold in excess of 32 million copies since its release on July 18th, 1987. It spent 18 weeks at number one in the US album charts, where it has become certified 11 times platinum. That means it's sold over 11 million copies of the album in the States. It is, of course, Dirty Dancing, which starred Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey as Johnny Castle and Francis Baby Houseman. It's a classic rom-com where Houseman, uh, the young woman, falls in love with Castle, who she meets while on vacation. In addition to phenomenal album sales, did you know this? It became the first movie to sell a million copies on video when it was released for home viewing. Do you remember the old video? Oh, I do indeed. The original album had 12 songs, all of which have become classics to a generation who grew up with the movie. And today, I begin my week of songs from the soundtrack with this one. Carmen and Hungry Eyes on your late lunch this Monday afternoon. The first song from my featured soundtrack from the movie Dirty Dancing. More to come about the movie and another song around about this time tomorrow on Late Lunch. Just reminding you again that donation is Steve-O's journey to recovery for young Stephen. All the help received will be gratefully received by him and his family. Final break of the afternoon and after the break, it's Engineers Week this week and we're interviewing and talking to people from Irish Water all week and kicking the week off is Donal Heaney. He's with me next. It's Engineers Week this week and around about this time each day on late lunch throughout the week I'll be joined by somebody from Irish Water and kicking us off today is an engineer from Irish Water who's currently studying for a Masters in Water Service Management and he knows all about dealing with wastewater. Donal Heaney, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thank you for joining me on Late Lunch this afternoon. Um, 
you know, wastewater, we hear an awful lot about it all of the time, Donald. But there's quite a bit that we can do to help you guys. There certainly is. Um, I think you're probably, probably the, the, the primary way is really, uh, and I'll, I'll jump straight to our Think Before You Flush campaign. Yes. And, and one of the biggest ways, I suppose, the, the ordinary customer, if you like, can help is is being careful about what they put down the toilet and down the sink. And uh, we run a, a Think Before You Flush campaign in partnership with Clean Coasts. And really the, the, the message of that is uh, not to put, not to flush sanitary products wet wipes, cotton buds, all of these uh, non-biodegradable items down the toilet. Because what can happen when they go down the toilet, they they go down into into the pipes, into the, the customer's own pipes, and then into the main sewage uh, treatment network. They combine with fats and oils and greases. They combine with each other and they cause, uh, they can bl- cause blockages in our pumps, in our networks, uh, in our screens, and ultimately overflows into at the marine environment, into rivers, lakes, um, and, and you know, cause pollution events. Um, mm. So I suppose our simple message on that is really uh, the, the three Ps, as we say, pee, poo, and paper are the only three things that should go down the toilet, put a bit in your bathroom, and uh, and don't flush those things down the toilet. So that's, that's our message. And I'm just looking at a picture that you sent to me here, and it just would shock you, an eight-foot, blockage removed from a pumping station in Wicklow and it just shows you the the problems that these things can cause because it, it just is a no-no. Please, please folks, don't dispose of them down the loo. Uh, leave them out, as Donald says, into a bin in your bathroom and uh, via the other route uh, to uh, recycling or, or, or whatever. Um, I, and just to say, you know, people, we are we monitor these things with, with surveys and, you know, that campaign has been going for six or seven years at this stage. And certainly uh, it, it is improving. Uh, people's behaviour has changed and people are more aware of it, but we've still further to go. It's, it's, it's a gradual thing. Um, so, yeah, it's great to, to get the, the, the opportunity to mention it. Yeah, and flush. Uh, th- think before you flush. Is as you said uh, yourselves in Irish Water in conjunction with the Clean Coast people, and they are a tremendous organisation. Nine hundred groups around Ireland, uh, twenty four thousand volunteers, and they go out and they pick up the stuff. Then if this goes through the system, that's washed up on the shoreline, al- along with a lot of other stuff, Donald. That's right. Um, I mean, it's it's a great. Uh, it's a great organisation, and it's a great uh, voluntary effort, as you said. There's, you know, over 24,000 people uh, signed up last year for beach cleans. And we know, say, that the, the uh, wastewater or sewerage litter is the third uh, largest uh, category of, of uh, beach litter. Um, so obviously the, the sewerage aspect of that has a big part to play. So we want to ensure that, that our, we play our part in, in educating people on that and making sure that this material doesn't end up on the beaches. Mm-hmm. We know of the environmental damage that can be caused. Uh, you know, we've read about seabirds mistaking, uh, you know, sewage litter for food and yes. they have sewage in their stomachs and turtles. Uh, similarly, there's lots of animals, you know, can do enormous damage, including as well as the actual pollution to the water itself. Mm. No, in a more general sense, uh, just reading the figures, there's over a thousand wastewater treatment plants and 25,000 kilometres of sewer network uh, across the country. How are we doing? You know, how are we doing today? I, I take the, I take it this is a, a moving
moving feast because the population is growing more houses and you guys have to be looking ahead all the time yeah correct um i suppose there's there's a huge effort going on behind the scenes and the the capital uh investment is huge at the moment and you know some of the big uh, items that people would be aware of i suppose in the media include getting rid of uh, raw sewage discharges into uh, the sea which we're making good progress on in in 2014 when irish water was established there was about 44 locations around the country where there were with raw sewage being discharged that's down below 30 now and it will be eliminated by the end of the decade it is a slow process you know that there are major capital investments there's a lot of statutory processes to be gone through but the progress is good similarly water conservation there's hundreds of millions being spent every year um and i suppose just maybe even to mention like some of the ones locally uh for for listeners uh, within the the lmfm catchment would include uh, stimulin in in mead uh the wastewater treatment plant there because of the rapid expansion in stimulin over the last 15 years or mm. so that treatment plant is at capacity that is being mothballed i suppose essentially and the wastewater from Stamullen will be pumped to Balbriggan where there's capacity for treatment there. So that's a, a major investment. Um, Enfield in Mead as well. There's a, a significant capital upgrade there to uh, cater for um, expansion. Omeath is another one, very important one in, in Loud, where um, there's a big investment there. That's one of the locations where there was a raw sewage, or currently is a raw sewage discharge, and there's a, a new wastewater treatment plant and a pumping station being built there to cater for that population. There are about 1,600 people. And there's also a major network upgrade in Omid under a, a north-south um, funding mechanism there called SWELL. It's the uh, shared waters enhancement and locks legacy a uh, bit of a mouthful but that's the investment vehicle there and it, it's uh, to designed to greatly enhance the quality of the waters in uh, carlingford lock so there's a lot, a lot, lot going happening on. even even locally that's just a few yeah the, yeah and, and, and just a, just a sample of them claire's been on to say can you put flushable wipes down the ones you buy in aldi no our yeah, our, our recommendation and and a plea, I suppose, is no. Um, no, they do, they do degrade. Uh, I suppose more quickly, but still too slowly, really. And there's there's still microplastics in those, so really no. If, yeah, you know, yeah, no. Just that's, avoid that's anything. The, the three P's as uh, <laughs> and one of them is P <laughs> that Donald mentioned a little bit earlier on. Pee, poo, and paper. That's all that goes down the toilet. Everything else is a no-no, folks. That the, that's the that's message it. we want to get out today. Anyway, Donald, I have to leave it there for the moment. I wish you well with the great work you're doing and all those projects that are going on. You do wonderful stuff for us all. We mightn't realise it, but it's so important uh, to human life that uh, our waste is treated. properly properly and we're making great progress that is the message today Donald Heaney from Irish Water thank you for joining me on the show thanks Jerry. take care of yourself bye bye there you go and we'll have more from Irish Water there's a, a young lady joining us tomorrow on the show on International Women's Day we'll also be talking to Banbon Goulding Yemi Adenuga Lisa Malone and Nora Morris they have a great story they really have Maria O'Dwyer is the lady from Irish Water that's with us tomorrow we'll have your number two on Tuesday it'll have to be from a lady too and the Dirty Dancing song has to be from a woman tomorrow I'll be the only lad in town tomorrow myself here at the microphone for late lunch anyway do join us tomorrow afternoon for Tuesday's show a special show Eddie Caffrey's coming next with The Drive 
this Monday afternoon. Stay with us on LMFM Radio. See you tomorrow, 1.30. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Jordan and Dogan Cavan. Order your new Dacia Duster or the all-new Dacia Sandero and Stepway. Guaranteed delivery and low-rate APR finance. Visit BlackstoneMotors.ie. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.